Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. She grew up playing for the Peel Selects and Eclipse Volleyball Club before attending Western University, where she's an OUA Rookie of the Year and three-time Player of the Year. She's played pro in Italy, Germany, Turkey, and Serbia. She was named the best blocker in Germany, the best spiker in Serbia, and is representing Canada on the beach and with our indoor women's national team. Please welcome to the show, Kelsey Veltman. Kelsey, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. So we were lucky enough to have your sister Lauren on the show. Uh, oh gosh, it feels like a few years back. It was definitely pre-COVID. But uh, fascinating about your family dynamic. Not only you have siblings that have all played varsity athletics, but like parents have played. Uh, I would argue your uncle's probably one of the best lacrosse players ever. Like, what was it like growing up? I imagine there was a lot of backyard sports going on. Oh yeah, I grew up playing lacrosse. I think we all did. All my sisters, cousins. Parents, everyone played lacrosse. I did that for 10 years. And then in the mix, there was like hockey, volleyball, and eventually had to pick a sport. And being 6'2", I think volleyball was the perfect choice. Well, now, was there any pressure to pursue lacrosse because your family's been so successful? Or are you like, honestly, just not the body type to play women's field lacrosse? There was some pressure. Um, I remember on the drive to Western, my parents were like, you know, if volleyball doesn't work out, you can always go back to lacrosse, see what happens, you know, Um, which is kind of funny. But when I quit, they were a little, I want to say a little upset because lacrosse runs in the summer. It's pretty easy to do and it's close by. So it worked out pretty well. But I was a big standout being as tall as I am on the field. So I I just kind of got uncomfortable as I got older, I felt. Okay. And if you had to remember, at what age group did you start uh, committing to club volleyball? Like how young were you when you like learned club volleyball was a thing and you wanted to play for Peel? I was in grade five, I think. So around then, I think I remember playing like U11 or U12, something like that. Yeah. You must have been one of the first heirs to go through that young because most people I think started around 14 U, but do you remember, was that triple ball back then? No. Nice. So. Yeah. Do you think that maybe helped you get hooked at such a young age? Because I think sometimes kids enter now and they, they don't enjoy it. Or volleyball is one of those weird sports where until your skills are at a certain level, it's it's really hard to enjoy. I think when you're just playing like gym class volleyball, right? Yeah. I mean, it kind of took a while. Like, of course, I loved it. But um, my coach at the time, like, really wanted to, like, get systems in and stuff. It wasn't like a play in your position, like play in like the spot you're at. Like, if you're in three, you're going to set. It's like you are a middle already at like this young age. And it was like crazy. I felt we had to overhand serve even if we couldn't, stuff like that. So they kind of like drilled it into us pretty early. So it was kind of hard to have fun because we couldn't really do it yet. But eventually it got easier. And Was there a libero at your age group or did you at least get to serve receive? Have you been a middle your whole life? I can't really say I've been a middle my whole life because I played a little left side at Western. And then I played a lot of opposite pro. So... <laughs> I just say I've like played a little bit of everything almost. Yeah, we'll get to that left side switch uh, when we get to your Western days. But uh, so focusing on club being a middle, um, when did Eclipse come together? Obviously, when athletes get a little bit older, maybe they're more committed and they're willing to drive to a different club or maybe they want to play with other talented athletes. So uh, you kind of grow up with Peel. It was kind of your local club. Uh, When did the idea of uh, Eclipse come and like what were some of the other athletes on your team? So I feel like the ideal or the idea from Eclipse came from Samantha Beltran. I don't know if you remember the Beltrans. Yeah. Her dad was a coach and she switched to Eclipse. I think Eclipse was created 15U. It was kind of like, I think I had the same idea as like crush volleyball when they were a thing at the time, um, where they just were like recruiting all like the big people. And um, I just remember like my parents kind of talked to me about it. They're like, if you want to go farther, like Kill Selects is kind of in Trillium right now. Like, let's try better teams and so we looked to see who was at the top at the time and I just went to the tryouts for 17U. It was actually really late where I joined them. I only did 17U, 18U with Eclipse and then made it there when they had Eclipse East and West and then in my 18U it was just one Eclipse again. So that's when Sam Beltran kind of recruited me to it. She's like you should try out, you should come because their family was involved with Kill Sex for a long time and so I kind of owe some credit to her I feel but yeah that's how it happened. And just a name drop for me and the listeners, your age group. So you would have been on a pretty successful team with Eclipse. Would you have played against like Tia Merrick's Lee side teams and like Gabby Machigowski? Or who were some of the other teams you would have played against? Maybe Lauren Sanderson at Forest City? Yeah, Lauren Sanderson and a few more. Uh, Tia and Gabby are a year younger, but if they played up, for sure, I played against them in my 18U year. 
because um, I think they played up. Uh, I played against and with Christina Alabastro, um, Abby Gantorn, a bunch of, <laughs> there's so many, I kind of forget. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's weird to think about now because that would have been like the early 2010s, I think you guys were coming through. But uh, so you go to a different club, obviously you want to take this to a higher level. When did recruiting become a thing? Like, did you ever look at uh, going to a different province, going to the NCAA, or did you know that like Western was the spot for you? So I, we started our recruiting in 17U. Our coach was like pretty good with us. She's kind of like, you guys have to make a recruiting video by this day. Like, so we can start sending them out like in 17U. But I didn't start looking into it until like late 18U, I would say. And the idea is always NCAA, I feel at that age. And uh, I didn't want to write my SATs. So <laughs> I decided, I was like, maybe I'll do a year uh, OUA or a year in Canada and then go after because then you don't have to write them or it was at the time maybe a loophole and um, I visited a bunch of schools I got recruited to a bunch of schools like I was pretty lucky with that aspect and then I visited Western and I don't know if the story is true but this is how I remember it is that I never actually signed anything to go to Western and they just made a post about all their new recruits and I was on it and I just no said way. okay sure I guess I'm going to Western <laughs> And so, yeah, that's uh, how that happens. Now I'm trying to line it up. Um, I think Melissa was there. I think she she had her first year maybe when Kat Seofus was there. So was it Melissa doing the recruiting or was there one coach change in your Western career? Um, no, Melissa did. I think we were her first recruited class. Nice. And she recruited herself. Okay. And, and what stands out in your mind of why Melissa is such a good coach and such a good recruiter? Because uh, you got her pretty young in her coaching career, but it seems like she's had success all the way through. Yeah. Um, I don't know. She's just like very approachable and like easy to talk to. Like there's never kind of like an awkward silence with her. Like she's really good with that. And like I had her when I played to Ontario, so I kind of knew of her already. So I was just like very comfortable signing there. Like I knew like I wasn't going to get screamed at or yelled at. Like she's a very calm coach, which is kind of rare these days almost, I feel. But um, no, like she's just like a very welcoming person, I felt. And when you play that first year of the OUA, like it, you kind of mentioned, maybe I'll shop around, maybe I'll transfer, I'll look to the NCAA. Was there anything that stood out that wanted to keep you there? Whether it was like the level of coaching and development you were getting, was the level of the OUA what you wanted and you thought you could turn into a national team player, a pro player playing there? Like what made you not want to transfer out or pursue other schools? I just kind of got comfortable, I guess. Like I did have an offer in my fifth year, like to go to USC to play there. Um, unfortunately didn't have enough credits to transfer. I was highly considering it, but I don't know. I was just comfortable and I kind of came to the conclusion that no matter where I am, pro is still going to be the goal. And that's just like up to me to achieve. So I felt like I didn't have to play NCAA if my end goal is going to be the same regardless. And I don't need any special treatment to get there. It's just like what I produce of myself. So I think that like kind of settled my mind on the whole decision. Now, we don't have to name names, and it's a few years back, but I am curious how that conversation started. So did they reach out to you? Did you reach out to them? Was it a player on social media reached out to you? Like, how do these conversations happen about uh, transferring as late as your fifth year? Yeah, um, I think there was someone at USC who um, knew the coach from Canada, or the USC coach, and uh, they were searching for a middle, and she suggested me. So they he started emailing me. They came to games and everything, and I uh, had a lot of phone calls with them and administration and stuff like that. So that's how that <laughs> came out. Nice. And you hinted on it earlier, where you got to play different positions at Western. What was the first conversation about you playing left side? Because as a fan, it felt like it was just this wild experiment, being like, "Okay, we need to score more points. Let's put Kelsey on the left." But I'm wondering how many reps happened in practice, how many conversations happened, or was it just that one match where it's kind of like, eh, "We're kind of stuck here. Let's change it up." Um, I want to say it was kind of like a random, like, "Let's try." Because I was like really involved in beach at the time. She, um, Melissa Bartlett, was like, "Okay, we know you can kind of pass. Like, that's not our concern." And so in those like struggling games, it's much easier to set a left side than a middle. So we would try it out and then sometimes it'd work great. And sometimes I'd be back in the middle of the next set. So just kind of like played around with stuff like that. And like their blockers, like if I was able to be up against the setter, that'd be like so much easier. So yeah, it was kind of fun to just be able to bounce around, I think. 
what's fascinating about this though is, is hearing about your club career and how like systems based your coach was and, and how aggressive they were with that so did it take any comfort from you because obviously you're hitting first tempo balls in the middle and now an out of system set like you're it's a different approach it's a different arm swing now you're way off the net like was there anything that was like either frustrating or exciting for you as an athlete to try to figure out the new position I love left side so much. I think it's so much fun. And I think adrenaline just kind of launches you into it. And like, again, with playing beach, like you kind of get those situations. So I think I was a little more prepared than if you're like a middle today, we just randomly start playing left side. So yeah, I give like a lot of credit to my beach training. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like, yes, you do receive, but it's not quite the same. Yes, you do hit outside, but it's not quite the same. I'm glad the experiment paid off. So as you're progressing through your Western career, and obviously more athletes start to get recruited, and I think um, Patsy Ophis was ahead of you, but Asia uh, comes in, Tia comes in, obviously the team's doing well. Um, I'm curious, was the goal ever external like did you ever be like i want to win player of the year i want to like uh, play in final four like uh, how did you stay motivated as an athlete and were you kind of chasing some of these impressive accolades you got i wouldn't say i was chasing them i actually didn't even know they existed when i went in for first year until melissa bartlett was like oh by the way you won all this and i was like oh what's this like i had no clue it was kind of like a surprise and i feel like every year after that was more of a surprise because I mean, the chances, like the league was so like pretty competitive. So like every year I just like wasn't expecting it. So I don't know. I just tried to keep playing at a high level and our team was very good at the time. You know, we all had the same goals in mind of like winning and making final four and doing all these things, which was so helpful that we were all on the same page. Now I'm a little biased and I think indoor and beach can serve each other. And I like when coaches support both, but did you ever find a challenge to be playing at such a high level for both? Cause obviously some indoor players really focus on indoor and they might play like locally or domestically to, to kind of play beach as like a fun sport where it looked like in your off seasons, you're representing Canada a couple times a year. So did you ever feel pressure to choose one over the other, or it's really hard to be elite at both? Or did you feel like Melissa and, and team Ontario and team Canada, you guys all coexisted because it was just something you wanted to pursue? I don't, I didn't find it too challenging. I mean, I was pretty young, so I was just like excited to do everything. And at Western, they were pretty accommodating too. Like if I had a trials or if each season just ended, they'd give me time off and like the opportunities to do those things. But the NCAA league and stuff didn't exist so much when I was um, playing, but indoor has always been my first priority for the most part. So I think that's just kind of like separating those two things of like picking what is your priority was pretty helpful. And I feel like indoor was definitely a, a better choice for me. So. And what was the process? So your indoor career comes to an end. Uh, you have a successful career with Western. Maybe you're debating between indoor and beach. Uh, what was necessarily the process of finding an agent and getting some of these first offers that you received? So I got pretty lucky where, uh, me and Marcello Abudanza, the coach of the national team at the time, um, we were grabbing coffee and he asked me if I wanted to play pro. And I was like, yep, like that's the goal. And he gave me the number to an agent that he really likes. And so when the time came to find an agent, I just messaged the guy whose contact he gave me and I've been with him the whole time. Awesome. Awesome. So um, with you being new, did you just put a lot of trust into the agent or maybe you spoke to some of your coaches? Because uh, for you to get an Italy offer out of your first year is very impressive, but I'm wondering, was there other countries? And as a newbie to the scene, how do you weigh uh, certain clubs or certain leagues versus others? Yeah, so my agent, I have full trust in him. Right from the beginning, he asked me where I wanted to play. And I just mentioned a couple places, Italy, Germany, Turkey. And he said, perfect. And just sent me the Italian contract and said, you should sign this right now. And I, that was it. I only had the one... Like he only, he only kind of brings me the ones he thinks are like worth talking about. Um, so that I only got the one offer or he only showed me the one. So that was what I signed. I didn't have to pick and choose between two teams. So I was kind of lucky, I guess. Awesome. And I know the timing was really tough because it was kind of the year, right? Like it gets canceled, but I do think, um, you still reported and played most of the season. You guys got off to a start, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we uh, the team moved up from um, 
A2 to A1, I think two years before I joined. So we were kind of like bottom of the pack, but then like had some big wins that first, like in my season, which kind of, we kind of ended like middle-ish. So like, I think we would have made playoffs or been close to making playoffs because um, there's some really big games before COVID um, came in. But yeah, I think we just got unlucky with that. And how did you deal with uh, the jump in skill level? Because obviously you were a top player in U sports and playing for our national team. But uh, I'm curious, what is uh, the A-League in Italy like for a first-time rookie? Oh. <laughs> Not easy. <laughs> I will say it, it's a big shock because of how fast everything is and how good every, everyone is. Like, you can't get away with those, like, little things that you easily could get away with in the OUA. So that took a lot of adjusting and being dug more than usual is more shocking almost. Um, so it did take some time, but after that year or two, like you kind of get used to it. So like now I feel I'm, I would be way more adjusted versus back then. So like, I feel like now watching OUA, I'm like, wow, this is so different than <laughs> what I'm used to now. It's kind of crazy. It's like watching high school and, and university. <laughs> and with you being a, a first year pro, one thing I've learned by doing the show is just, uh, Obviously, varsity athletes do a lot and there's a lot of time management. But when you take that school piece out of it and you add in a time zone and you really can't always talk to family and friends when you want to, like, how did you deal with that? Like, how often was your team training? What did you do to kill time? Were you watching a lot of movies? Like, what, what are you doing when your only focus is to play volleyball and you're kind of a foreigner in a new place? Yeah, that can be really tough. Um, I feel like you just kind of pray you have a foreigner on your team or an American or some friends. Cause like that just makes it so much better. Um, but yeah, a lot of time on Netflix, a lot of time watching movies, a lot of time by yourself at a coffee shop and just like trying to get outside or go to the mall, like training, we train typically twice a day, maybe a couple times, just once a day. And then one day off during the week, maybe two if you're lucky stuff like that. So, I mean, it's just like how you choose to fill your time because you do have a lot more than you think, but I, I nap a lot too. I feel like that's normal, <laughs> but yeah. And when you arrive, uh, just looking at the roster, it looks like uh, there was a couple Americans. So I'm sure that was a little bit helpful, but the extra dynamic of one of them played the same position as you. So did you ever feel pressure that like, man, I'm a middle blocker and I'm a foreigner. So there's probably expectations to perform, but uh, was, was she a roommate? Like obviously like two English speakers having an American, like how did you keep a friendship, but like a competitive spirit about like, we both need to perform. Yeah. So we kind of got lucky where I played M1 and she played M2. So we never actually had to like compete for the position, maybe here and there, if one of us was playing bad, like we, we both started, which was kind of nice. And, uh, roommate wise, we had our own apartments, but we were neighbors. Like it was in the same building. Like we were side by side and I actually ended up playing with her in Germany as well. Simone's speech, which was super fun. Like we became really, really good friends as you do. Cause you guys spend 24 seven together in such a short time. But yeah, like, I think we worked well together. Like we kind of were each other's backbones, like when no one else speaks English or doesn't understand like the culture shock you're going through, it's kind of nice to have that person with you. And, and how did you deal with that dynamic as far as like communicating with coaches or other teammates? Like, was there a couple of people who could translate Italian to you or how did you battle just kind of understanding the system they were asking you to play? Yeah, um, our assistant coach spoke pretty good English and a couple girls spoke pretty good English on every team I've played on. There's always been someone who can speak English, which is, I am truly thankful for. Um, but some teams might even get you a translator. So those there's like a small group. That's always, you always have to stand by and listen to and have them translate for you. I always feel bad, but they always appreciate it. They just want to speak English. So they'll do <laughs> And they love to translate almost. So yeah, having a translator or one, one teammate is kind of all you need, but um, sometimes the coaches do, sometimes the coaches don't, sometimes they expect you to learn a little bit. So by the end, I felt like I knew enough Italian that um, when they explained the drill, I kind of understood what we had to do, which was kind of fun. Nice. Nice. And if you had to remember that year, where were you when the world started shutting down? Like, did you have to stick around a little bit? Did you get the heck out of town and get home? Like, what was it like when you just felt like everything was being canceled around you? Um, that was really stressful because Italy was kind of one of the next biggest impacted countries after China. So um, the league had to go on pause, but they didn't want to cancel 
And so they're like, we'll wait a week. And so we're just sitting in our houses for a week and then they wouldn't cancel. And then we got to play a game without any fans. And then they had to cancel the like, or take a break for a bit. And it came to a point where a lot of us had to break our contracts in order to leave because they wouldn't let us leave until the league canceled. And eventually, I think Italy was one of the last leagues to cancel, which was kind of crazy to us. Um, so we got out of there. Uh, like, it was me and, like, eight other Americans from all different teams, like, all on the same plane, like, all traveling out of there together. But, um, yeah, a lot of us had to break our contracts in order to go because they took so long to cancel the league and they wanted us to wait around for it. And we said no. That's wild. And did that eventually get worked out when they saw how severe this was? Or, like, uh, did your agent have to kind of step in and did make sure that you got paid or that you weren't in violation of your contract? Yeah, um, a lot of the girls, so whether, so the, um, a lot of the Italians stayed, but they still only got 70% of their contracts, regardless of if they stayed or not. So in the end, it just kind of like worked out that way. But yeah, I had to sign a whole new contract before I left and I just under, understood the terms and I was like, that's fine at that point. Wow. Well, that's another layer that I didn't expect. So uh, what was it like negotiating for the contract the next year? Because obviously it felt like it lasted forever and it's still going on, but you decide, you know, I'm going back to Europe. Uh, I have this uh, offer in Germany. Like, were you, were you excited to go or was there any hesitation about like the world's still in a very weird place right now? Yeah, I kind of feel like I jumped onto the contract because I got it pretty early and I was like, okay, it's in the middle of COVID. Like, I don't know, like what's going on. So I just kind of signed that contract pretty quickly. And my American was from Italy was playing on that team as well. So I felt like super comfortable knowing that she was also there and we're kind of on the same page of like what's happening. So I felt pretty comfortable in Germany. Germany's a very organized league and I like trusted their decisions with stuff like this. So I was pretty comfortable signing there. Now, one thing I love about the German league is just their, they don't really have a harsh foreigner rule. Like there doesn't seem like the whole team has to be German where it looks like half your team was German, but then you mix in, a couple Americans, I think a, a Brazilian setter, a Puerto Rican setter, um, a Slovenian athlete. Like, what was it like walking into the team room and just seeing like such a, a unique mix of athletes? Oh, I was so excited. I had four amazing Americans on my team that I became really, really close with. And just like having so many foreigners, they just kind of all understand what we're all going through together. Like, it's not the same as, like, the locals, you know, have been playing in this league for a couple of years. They can drive home in two hours, stuff like that. So, like, all us foreigners and the, the Americans and I especially bonded over just, like, being foreign, which we didn't exclude anyone. But, like, it was just kind of like, these people know how I feel right now, which is kind of nice. And is there any... Um like almost like a social aspect of, of being a part of it. Like obviously like you're training hard in, in your career, but like, is it nice just to go grab coffee with somebody or grab a beer? Like, is it like that level of just now I have so much free time, but now I don't feel like I need to nap or watch a movie that like, you can just go hang out with any one of these athletes that are on your team. Yeah, for sure. Like the social aspect is like really important or else you kind of just get sad and lonely for not actively trying to do stuff. And so just having like this big group of foreigners, just helped with that so much. We were always down, like there was always going to be one person who would be down to do anything, grab coffee, go out, you know, get drinks, stuff like that, which was amazing. Now, traditionally is uh, Potsdam like a competitive club? I'm just looking at your year and it looks like you finished fourth in the Bundesliga, uh, second in the cup series. Like it looks like you guys had a successful year, but I'm wondering, uh, did the owner and coaches think that was successful? Was it supposed to be like a, a winner bust or was that a pretty solid year for this club? Um, that was like the previous all year of that club. They've never made German cup finals before and we were able to do that. So like, I think they've been able to move up every single year, like improve every single year after I left there, which was kind of nice. Um, but yeah, we were kind of like the outbreak for them to like, kind of like get these like big wins and like playing all these like cup finals and stuff. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then what was the the transition like? So obviously volleyball players, I think, uh, you guys enjoy betting on yourselves or you're signing a bunch of one-year deals and some people like it that, uh, you know, if you have a good year and you have a good club, you can always resign. but sometimes it's nice to pursue other offers. Uh, so what were some of the offers looking into next season and what made you land on Turkey? So I had the offers to go back to Germany, of course. Um, but Turkey is like a really, it's like kind of up there with it, the Italian league. A lot of good players are playing there. A lot of Olympians are playing there. 
and the team that offered me did really well the previous year. I think they won like a, a CEV Challenger or a CEV Cup the year before they uh, made playoffs, but unfortunately had to forfeit because they all had COVID. So I was like, okay, perfect. Like this is kind of like a good next step up for me. And so I was like really excited to sign in Turkey for the year. And what was that like? Uh, I know you mentioned like the skill level there, and obviously there's a ton of strong domestic players, ton of, ton of uh, strong, excuse me, uh, foreign athletes. Are any of these leagues a different style? Like you go from Italy to Germany and then you go to Turkey. Like, did you notice any different demands as a middle blocker or playing high level middle blocker is almost the same everywhere? Um, I feel like it's pretty similar everywhere. Um, versus like OUA, they kind of want you to block everything. Where in these leagues, they kind of understand that you're not going to block everything. So instead of having all the responsibilities, we kind of split it up amongst the other blockers, which is kind of nice. Like my job isn't to block everyone. My job might just to be block the middle and left side. That's all I have to worry about, which is kind of nice. And I feel like it's been like that for every team I've played. The only difference I would say is like speed of the game. And then Italy, Turkey, there's just like more really competitive teams where Germany and Serbia only like the top four or five, six are like good where the bottom ones are pretty easy to play. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. As a coach, I'm like nodding my head to this theory, but I think middles are probably the hardest working position to get the least amount of credit. So just to follow your example, where maybe you're alerting for the middle and the left side, your team defense knows there's going to be a one-on-one if they set the right side, like it's that kind of clear and you guys build your system around that. Yeah. Wow. And how often does that change? Like, does that stay the same for the whole match? Or obviously you guys are obviously adjusting maybe if the right side's popping off, but, and obviously you're not giving up. If you make a good read or they're out of system, you're going to go block the other side, but because it's so fast and you kind of have to alert, I'm wondering how often are you adjusting that uh, in match versus just saying, you know what guys uh, on the right side, we need to take this ball because I'm not going to get there. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of like, they do a lot of scouting beforehand. So it's very much like, okay, when the setter is in, Three, like they set the slide 80% of the time. So my my job is only slide and pipe. And so just, I think they just like bet it off odds. And obviously if something's out of system, then they're like, okay, hey, your job is to block left and right side. Um, but other than that, like it's very like the stats people I've worked with are like unbelievably smart and like know everything about the game. And they are just like, we're so well prepared all the time, which is like amazing. Would there be any middle matchups where you would just do like a full commit, like a, a just a simple example, like if they're running a bunch of thirties, you would go stand in the thirty gap, or were you always kind of like I have to prioritize two or three things, and I'm just going to make a live read off that? Um, it's more like this is your commit, and so that kind of gets stressful when you're like memorizing the scouting page because a lot of the things are very specific. But um, again, we have to wait for the pass to see like where should I be right now. So like if it's perfect, then yeah, they'll like be like take a step to the thirty, and if it's not, then they're like, okay, now you're reading. Yeah, I think a lot of coaches are probably finding this fascinating, where you have the priority and we build our defense around that. So I'm curious, as an athlete, how did you try to retain this? Like, were you a big video watcher? Did you want the shot charts? Like, obviously, you can always look over at the bench, but I'm sure coach is going to get annoyed if you're looking over every rotation, be like, what am I doing now? So how did you feel confident to retain this and kind of? almost find your flow state while still respecting all the numbers you were given. Yeah. So I was very much like I organized it, but like, Hey, set one or setters in one, what am I blocking? And just memorize like, okay, middle, like quicks and left side, quicks, left side, quicks, left side. That's all I have to remember. And so I would just kind of like really dumb it down because the scouting reports are beyond intense. Like, if we serve this girl, then we, we're going to block this and this. But if we serve this girl, we're going to block this and this. And you're just kind of like, oh, my goodness. Like, what, what, what's my main priority right now? And a lot of it's like the numbers. So, like, okay, they said 65% left side, 10% quick, you know, stuff like that. So I would just, like, yeah, really dumb it down for myself. <laughs> and is, is that happening at the net as well? Like, obviously – your main responsibility is to know this. So are you helping your wing hitters kind of know that like, this is your alert or this is what we're looking for? Like how much communication is happening? Obviously in the OUA, you see people call out front or back row setter and maybe who the front or left side is, but I imagine it's more of a detailed alert you guys are giving at your level. Yeah. So some years they'll 
hold a, a number behind their back, whether they're blocking line or cross, sort of like beach, or if they're blocking our system, which is high ball line, quick ball uh, cross, or or we're talking to each other just at the net straight up, like left side and middle, and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> And at your level, I imagine the shot chart is pretty detailed, but are you really responsible for taking a space? Like, I imagine the set's pretty fast enough that you don't have time to read angle and speed of approach. It's like, I need to get my hands to this zone because my defender's counting on that. Yeah, it's pretty much just take up this area. Now, through doing the show, I, I think setters like to brag, and obviously I've given them a lot of credit, that they like to be sneaky and they like to look through the net and they like to decept, uh, be deceptive with the middle blocker. But is there anything you found that you can kind of counter that cat and mouse game? Because I think they like to do a lot of tricky stuff and run overloads and do things. Is there any, even just starting or moving to a different starting position or maybe stepping when they kind of look to give them misinformation? Like, is there anything a middle can do to disrupt the setter? Or is it honestly just conceding that they're in control and you need to play the numbers? I, I'm the wrong person to ask about this because I fall for it every time. Like, <laughs> I'm a big guesser and like, I get yelled at a lot for it. And it's just like, I can't help it. Like I am, I get fooled way too much. It's almost embarrassing to admit, but I, I just try to wait it out as long as I can. Or sometimes you can tell, or sometimes my coach, like he'll look at me and be like, you're going to block left side right now, no matter what. Like, even if you're wrong, you're going that direction. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> nice, nice. So to follow your, your journey here, you go from Turkey, uh, another off season. And what made you want to join the uh, Serbian league? Um, they had a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they had a lot of money um the coach actually called me um and was like why don't you want to come here and I was like oh I don't know like I, I was also uh debating an offer in Turkey again for a different club um or I was waiting for them to like respond to my agent and Serbia was like we're giving you so much money and I was like okay <laughs> so I just ended up signing there so as somebody who's been through it, uh, what did you think uh, culturally, not only like lifestyle, but also sports culture? Because now it's all over the news that, uh, you know, they supposedly have the best basketball player on the planet. They arguably have one of the best tennis players on the planet. But for a country that's like six million and change, are they pretty sports crazy? Or what was your experience like? Oh, yeah, they're very sports crazy out there. And it's because they have like, they'll have like a club that has like not just like volleyball club it's like one club so if like eclipse had basketball volleyball soccer and so they gain like such a huge fan base by having all this like an umbrella of a club which is like super cool and they go from like all ages so like their pro teams like partisan is like a huge one in serbia and they're like like they have so many fans just from like all the different sports so that's like, it's super cool to see. And like, it's all under, almost all under one roof or one area. So like, they get a lot of attention with that. And when you say that, like, obviously it makes sense that you're part of this huge club. So when you guys play a meaningful home match, what is the crowd like? Um, they're pretty loud. <laughs> that's for sure. They love uh, a lot of old men with like those like blow horns which yeah. is i can't even believe like they're so old i can't like, i'm shocked that they can like have these pair of lungs to do this but it's like very loud there's a lot of heckling especially for playing a rival but i obviously don't understand half of it obviously but um yeah they can get pretty rowdy and with your club this year you played in a bunch of stuff so you had uh cev cup uh you had obviously like your your super league in, in serbia you have the cup um, you have the super cup, like as an athlete, how do you keep track of all these meaningful matches? Like, how are you firing up for all these opportunities? Like it just looked like a pretty intense, uh, competitive schedule this year. Yeah. I mean, I got really lucky with our CUV cup game was against one of my German teammates who I played with in Potsdam. So I was just like really excited to see her, which like made it so much easier. Like I just got yeah super lucky with the opportunity to do that and see her and play against her again. Um, but you just kind of go with the flow. I mean, half the time I didn't know exactly what days these games were until I got the schedule. And I don't know, I'm just always excited for a game day. And the more games, the better, honestly, sometimes, because um, it's a lighter practice schedule to get around them. But it is a lot on in your head because you have to memorize so many different um, players and tactics and stuff like that. So that can get a little tangled in it all. But 
as long as you're recovering well, then I think it's a lot of fun to do all that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, training because I did want to ask this as a middle. Um, there, there are coaches who believe a ton in load management and they're obviously going to be aware of how many swings you're taking and how many jumps. And then there's coaches who really don't care about periodization and you're going to jump every single day. So I'm curious uh, with this competition in, in Serbia or any of the other leagues you're played with, uh, how can you manage your body through some of these seasons? Like, did you have coaches who were pretty sympathetic to the demands of the middle position or did you feel like you had to jump max every single day, like maybe a hundred times or more in training? Yeah, it depends where. So. Um, Germany, we had uh, jump trackers, and once we hit a certain number, they were like, "Okay, you guys are that's enough jumping." Or if we jumped a lot the day before, we weren't jumping the next day, which was great. You kind of don't notice it as like a factor until you don't have that. And like Turkey and Serbia, I don't think I had much jump management. <laughs> and like mid-season, you're like, "Why are my knees hurting? <laughs> and like, why am I so tired? And why can't I jump today?" And like, you just don't notice it at, cause like when you're younger, that's like almost not even an issue, but like now you're just kind of like, okay, shoot, like <laughs> I need to put my feet up tonight or, you know, roll out today or stuff like that. So like, it's, it's harder when they don't offer those like resources or like rest times, but you just kind of get through it, I guess. And another interesting dynamic just with your serving club is, uh, Kind of the opposite of what we talked about with Germany, where there, I think there's you and one other foreigner. I think uh, the, your opposite was from Cuba, uh, but then a, a lot of like domestic talent. So how was uh, just the general language skills of being able to communicate with teammates? And then what were you doing in that downtime if maybe they weren't uh, as willing to maybe go chat over coffee just because they didn't speak English or weren't as confident in their language? Mm-hmm. So my foreigner was from Cuba and actually spoke zero English, zero Serbian, like just Spanish. So she was lucky where our trainer spoke some Spanish and one of my teammates spoke a little bit, but um, I got really close with a lot of the Serbian girls because a lot of them spoke amazing English. Like if they told me they studied in the States, I believe them. So I got pretty close with those girls and obviously tried to involve um, my Cuban teammate as much as possible because I understand how tough it is to be a foreigner. But just, you just kind of have to take initiative. Like I would invite them over to my place and, you know, cook dinner or something like that. Or we would um, try to go on a free weekend and try to go to Belgrade. And they kind of understand, like, you know, you you kind of have to have those conversations with them and just be like, it's really tough to be a foreigner out here when you guys have your friends and, you know, can go home anytime. And so they'd invite me to Christmas and dinner parties with their families and stuff. So like, I was just really grateful for the group I had. Yeah. Another great point that I wanted to bring up, um, with the level of league you're playing and just the demands of you being a foreigner and maybe some of the contracts you're getting, you, it's safe to say you've never spent Christmas at home since you've played pro volleyball, right? There's just not enough time to take a break. No, I've never spent Christmas, but I've been able to go home over new year's twice. Oh, nice. Yeah, Serbia gave me um, some extra time off and Italy gave me an extra day off. And being my first year, I was desperate to go home because like the first year is the hardest. But Serbia was just like really generous with me and they gave me a good chunk of time off where I was able to come home for a week, actually, which was like the longest amount of time off I've had. And I was so excited about that. I was going to say like, yeah, a week for somebody with a day job seems like pretty normal where we're like, most people get two weeks at least, uh, you, you getting a week off from pro volleyball and you're so ecstatic for it. That just shows the, the, the special world you're a part of. So, uh, with Serbia winning best spiker, I mean, we just kind of went down the rabbit hole of how hard it is to be, you know, the, the defensive demands and how the system's kind of built around the middle blocker, but offensively how are you prepping to play at this level like when you go to a new club is it kind of like this is the system we want to run or these are the sets you like to hit and you kind of like meet in the middle about what the setter is going to do and what the coach wants it's very neat in the middle i would say um they're very like um pro they're very like opposite heavy or like um we always there's always a superstar left side and it's very that heavy so i notice as a middle sometimes like you do miss opportunities to get a lot of balls so um just like communicating like my turkey and survey year i was like the most balls i've ever gotten um since like western so it's just kind of like a i think it just comes with experience and like talking to your coach and setter and like if you have a good relationship with your setter and like you're scoring a lot of points then they're going to keep running you and just kind of like setting that up and like 
I don't know, like getting, getting good at practice for them to like, okay, we can score with these. And if you keep scoring with them, then of course they're going to keep doing it. And so it's kind of nice. And it, you know, as a middle, they're always like, oh, run the middle a couple times and then, you know, create open spaces, blah, blah, blah. But if you're able to like keep scoring, then it's kind of nice. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I think the setter wants to keep you feeling valued. So you will create those one-on-ones for the outsides, but uh, I'm curious as a middle, any tips for either coaches or, or younger athletes who are middles, how to advocate for yourself? Cause I think the setter takes flack from every position, but I'm curious, how do you ask for, you know, I need this a little bit tighter. I need this faster. I need it in pushed into this gap. Like what are some ways that you found a way to communicate to the setter that uh, is clear if language is a bit of a struggle, but also not just like offending them to the point where just like, no, you're going to hit the ball. I set. like, I'm, I'm the one driving this. Yeah. Um, that can be tough. Like every setter I've had has been older than me. So I, I either wait for them to ask me like, Oh, how was that? I don't want to like offend them or like, I'm always like, I don't know. I always feel like everything's my fault. So like if I can't hit a ball, like, or even if like, it's not the perfect set, there's always a way to fix it. And so I do kind of take like a, a lot of initiative of myself where I'm like, I can go faster or I'll slow down or I'll like say that to my setter. Like, do you want me to go faster? Do you want me to, you know, wait a second, be a little later, stuff like that. And just kind of like, not like being like, you need to do this, but like, what can I do to help the situation? And just to go back to one of your earlier points about uh, you go from OUA to pro and you're getting dug more than you've ever thought. Uh, I'm wondering, did you have to develop any new shots or was there anything you had to change about your game to just feel like more of a professional middle that maybe there, there's certain things that just weren't going to get it done that we're getting it done in the OUA? Yeah, I feel like I had to improve my slide because um, everyone can run tempos at this, at this age and, you know, they scout you enough where they know kind of which direction you're going to go. And so I feel like running a slide really kind of helped me stand out because, um, it's not an easy thing to run all the time. It's not an easy thing to score on. And so improving in that factor, I think helped me a lot, um, because I was able to get more balls and be an option more often, which was pretty nice. And sometimes I just stay out there and hit as an opposite. So like that also gives us an out of system option. Just kind of being able to adapt, I think, helped me a lot. Yeah. Was there any challenges uh, going off one foot? Because obviously it's a pretty dynamic skill. And we, we covered that in, in U Sports and OUA, you were playing left side half the time. So you were getting like out of system sets and really working like a true probably three or four step approach. So to do it at a pro level, uh, was it again, just to your earlier point, communicating with the setter, but like, was I fast enough? Was I too slow? Or like, how many times did you have to rep it to be so comfortable to go off one foot? Um, I think I just kind of learned the slide in university, but if I were to like be playing middle, but like hitting as an opposite in like that position three, um, we'd change the call to something else. Like I wouldn't call for a slide. I'd call for like an outside ball so I can time it right as well. But the one foot takeoff wasn't too big of a difference versus like doing it in the OUA. And, and same thing with my earlier question, but you had to switch to the left side last minute, the, the right side switch again, did you have to get a certain amount of reps? Do you feel comfortable? You're kind of like, whatever, I've played beach, just set me up and down and I'm going to crush it. Yeah. I think just the adrenaline of playing a different position takes over me. <laughs> I just get way too excited and somehow it works out for the best. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Amazing. And uh, I am curious with the level of knowledge, you know, as a blocker that you're getting with some of these top tier scouts you're playing with, do you ever feel pressure to do like a self scout and kind of figure out offensively where they kind of know, okay, when she does hit a 30, it's either going here or here. Like if she does hit a step around, like this is her primary, like, do you ever feel urgency to change it? Because as you mentioned, every team probably has a full-time data person and they're watching every match. So is it just coming down to, if you execute really well, you don't feel like you can be stopped or is there times where you feel pressured to change tendencies or learn a new shot? Um, I feel like it's the first option where like, if it's working well, then everything's fine. Like there are times like our coaches will say in like the stats, like or the video film meeting, they'll be like, okay, we're going to do this for now. This will like, this might change in the game and we'll tell you when it's changing. So like you almost, you just have to memorize that first thing and they'll do everything else which is kind of nice. Like I don't really have to think of my own or they'll tell you like, Hey, they're blocking you here. We're going to do this now. And you're like, okay. <laughs> now let us in behind the scenes a little bit. So you just played an impressive season in Serbia, obviously to earn a best spiker award, obviously you're getting a ton of volume. We've talked about the demands on defense. So 
when you finally get home, how much off time are you taking? Because I think it's fascinating for kids. And you experience this as a high level indoor and beach player. You just go from one to the other and you almost play like year round volleyball. So I'm wondering now that you're at a professional level, do you get a week, two weeks to do nothing? Do you take a month? Like how long do you take before you're kind of like, okay, now my shoulder and knees feel good. I can go back to the gym and maybe get into like preseason mode before I go back. Yeah, I tend to like, I take around two weeks before I start doing anything again. Like I do like to get settled in and unpack and, you know, visit the family and, you know, get really involved in the stuff I missed. And then, um, and then it's right back into it. I'm finding places to train, be whether it's beach or indoor and working out again regularly because you don't want to show up next season and be kind of behind um, that kind of sucks because they'll call you out for it. So just to kind of like keep in shape enough where you're kind of at the same level as everyone else coming back from national team and entering back into like regular season. So yeah, I give myself about two weeks off. Yeah, that's so interesting. So if the expectation is training camp isn't to train, like it's not to get in shape, you need to show up like ready to go and game ready for you uh, choosing not to be on the national team. And, and I mean that literally like you, you've chosen not to be on the beach national team. I think we offered you a spot this year. Uh, where do you find these opportunities? Like, are you going to uh, university friends? Are you going to find open gyms? Are you talking to other pros that you have a network with? Like uh, uh, I have to imagine it, it's pretty freeing to be, have like this much autonomy, but sometimes don't you just want like the indoor feeling of like, uh, if I bring my shoes and I show up at seven o'clock, I know I have a game going on. Like how much organizations going into this versus how much of a network do you already have that you kind of have that, you know, where and when you need to be. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to have a sister still at Ryerson and they do regular trainings every week. So I'm able to hop in with those and bring some other of like my pro friends with me. So that just like ups the level for us. And I do have like a network of the other professionals around who aren't doing anything. And so we always seem to find a place or organize something ourselves, whether it's beach or indoor. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because I, I think your coach would lose it if you went four months without touching a volleyball at a high level, right? Yeah, my my coach, my agent, <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot of people who'd get angry at that. <laughs> Yeah, that was going to be my next question for Eddie behind the scenes stuff. So you don't have to tell me if it's too personal, but uh, how much communication is going on with your agent? Like as of right now, I believe you are a free agent, but uh, do you have formal meetings? Do they contact you when something's up? Is it, is it gets done by like July or August? Like what are some of the communications in the off season uh, and how formal can it get with your agent? Because I've had him for so long, I feel like me and him, we just text call once in a while. Like I don't talk to him as often as, um, some people think like every, everyone's agents different. Some people's agents will call them every week. Some people's agents talk to them once a year. Um, me and my agent will talk. This is the most time we'll talk is through these like next couple months. And it'll be like every couple weeks where it's like any news here is who I'm talking to anywhere you want to go, stuff like that. And then eventually I'll get the text of like, all right, here's some contracts you pick or what do you like and um, sign and go from there. And I won't hear, me and him won't communicate unless there's issues or he's checking in, but it's like not too often. And, and again, you don't have to answer if it's too personal, but uh, when we had Fred Winters on the show and I tell the story all the time because I thought his honesty was amazing and it was honestly just a hilarious story. But uh when you're considering offers or you're talking about leagues to go, he said it's money. And if anyone tells you it's not money, they're fooling themselves. Like you're going to go where you feel the most valued and you're going to get paid the most. But then he said he had a spreadsheet with his partner and they would talk about what's the apartment like, what's the city like, what's the food like, and they kind of break it down from there. But uh, I'm curious when you're receiving multiple offers or you're thinking about, oh, it'd be cool to play here. What is kind of your like one, two, three, four things that you're looking for? Oh, money is for sure. Number one, <laughs> of course. Like you can't say no to some to it sometimes. If it's like a couple thousand difference, then okay. Like then I'm gonna weigh the other options. But like money is first. Um, I then look at uh, foreigners if they have who like whether foreigners they have who they are, um, and then I look at location mostly because I kind of like being close to a big city. Um, that makes a big difference and. Yeah. And then maybe if I get a car or not, but that's typically, I usually get lucky with that. <laughs> so it's fair to say that the level you're playing at, usually the club will provide you with a pretty nice housing situation and more often than not a car. Yeah. I've been pretty lucky with my housing situations. I've had an apartment to myself three out of my four years. 
in a car three out of my four years. And again, just by doing the show, I think it's just a funny commentary on sometimes coming from Canada to Europe. Uh, did you drive standard when you went over there? Or did you have to learn what the car they provided you? Um, my cousin actually taught me for 30 minutes the day before I left for Germany. So, <laughs> Um, Italy gave me an automatic, which is kind of nice, but I had to learn real quick and thank goodness I was able to pick it up because I had a stick also in Serbia. So after, after I figured it out, I was good from there. Yeah, this is, this has been awesome, Kelsey, just to hear about your career. And obviously anyone who watched the OUA probably saw you play when you were taking down those player of the year awards and just to get caught up with the pro scene and, and hear everything that goes into it. So this has been awesome and thank you for sharing so much. But uh, one tradition we built in the show is just to tell a, a funnier, unique story. So obviously you've globetrotted a little bit. You've played some beach, you played some indoor, uh, hopefully something odd or funny has happened along the way that you can share with us before we let you go. Yeah. So I'll say this is the nicest way possible. Um, in Turkey, I had some very passionate fans um, to the point where I've received a hundred roses, seven bouquets of flowers, drawings of myself that they have been given, letters, food, um, jerseys signed by a random soccer team with my name on it. I've been given clothing. I've been given um, birthday cakes where I've had fans quite literally show up to my practice looking for me and like asking me to grab a coffee with them and it got really intense really quickly and it was to a point where I had to talk to management and tell them to like not let these people <laughs> around anymore because it was just so constant with like all these gifts and stuff like of course I'm grateful for the fans I had out there but there was a point where it was just like way too much and yeah it was a lot but at the end, I left anyway, and I was never going to have to run into these people unless I go back to Turkey. So, yeah, I was just a lot in one season. That is so wild. I never thought it would get to that point because obviously, like, we want fans and we want people to, like, be a part of the club. But, yeah, when it reaches that point, like, you, you felt unsafe probably at a certain point, right? If they're coming to the gym, like, thank God they didn't know where you live, but it could have got to that, like, point, right? Yeah, I had like secret admirer letters coming in being like, I'm, I've watched every game. Like, I want to meet you. I want to be your friend. Like, text me. Here's my number. I'm like, in like letters, like form of letters. And I was like, I'm scared. <laughs> like, it came to a point where someone texted them for me and was like, this is too far to do for a girl living internationally by herself. And they stopped. So nice. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So obviously, thanks. Thank goodness for management for taking this seriously. But wow, that's that's such a wild experience you had to go through. Yeah, like at first it's flattering, but after a while it gets a little scary. Oh, man. Well, uh, again, thanks for all the chair. And I know it's not all sunshine and rainbows here. There is a, a different side to it, obviously, when you're a star player on a team and obviously getting a lot of attention. So, yeah, but thanks for sharing these layers. That's a new one by me. I never thought it would get to this point, but that's... <laughs> That, that's a unique thing that volleyball is giving you. So thank you for sharing that and everything else you did. I, I mean, like I said, it's been great to follow your career and we'll be rooting for you and, and can't wait to see where you end up next year. Yeah, thank you.